Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. He's causing problems for his caucus, causing problems for this government, damaging relationships all over the place, and he needs to be reined in. And I've told everyone who uh, wants to ask me the question how I feel about Stephen Gibeau, and I'm very straight about that. I can think I can work with many of the other ministers, and I don't understand why they're allowing him to be a maverick and a renegade and a hypocrite. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith voice is uh, the voice you just heard. And uh, the Premier appears on our chorus radio stations in Alberta, your province, your Premier, on Saturdays. Well, it's your country. And it's Alberta's Premier on the Roy Green Show today. Premier, how are you? I'm well, Roy. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. It's, uh, it's great to hear your voice. I hear your washing machine's causing you problems. <laughs> yeah, I do this segment from my home office, and I have the washing machine in the background. I've been traveling for a couple of weeks, so I had to do some laundry today. I hope it doesn't interfere with our conversation. No, no, but we always know what you're doing. You know that. We in media know everything, <laughs> as you well know. I know you do. As you well know. No, you know it from your years in media, right? I always said to people, look, when I ask you the question, presume I have the answer. But nobody ever followed that advice. But well, you, it's true. You got to tell it straight because people like, people can hear when you're not being sincere. That's one thing I learned in my years on the radio. Yeah, big time. <laughs> on your program on Chorus Radio yesterday in Edmonton and in Calgary, let's start with the E. coli case. This is one that is so terribly, terribly disturbing. It's gotten it's getting tremendous attention across the country. Three hundred and forty-two cases as of yesterday. Twelve or thirteen children remain hospitalized. And um, would you just address that for us, please? What are your, what are your thoughts, your plans? Well, I can tell you, I, I don't know that I have ever seen a case like this where so many instances were stemming from one, what appears to be one common kitchen. We're pleased to see that the numbers are stabilizing, which means I th- we think that we have identified all of the cases of infection. And the number of hospitalization has actually gone down. So we're, we're down to 11 kids in hospital and four on dialysis, which is just we're so grateful for that because it, 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 it means that the, the long term organ damage is is uh, likely mitigated for most kids. They're still going to have to be tested every year. I spoke, I went to to tour the the, uh, area that they have for testing yesterday and talk to the doctor in charge. And so she's, she says we've learned a lot about how to treat this. And if you can get there quickly and make sure that they've got the fluids and the saline and get them on dialysis, those who need it, we can really mitigate the harm. So I have nothing but positive to say about the AHS response and the, and the response to the local docs at the Children's Hospital in particular. Um, we also are in the process of uh, doing a full review to understand where precisely this, this contamination stemmed from. All roads are pointing to this common kitchen, but we have tested 45 different food products, and so far nothing has come back with a positive. So we still don't know precisely what food uh, product caused it or what handling practices caused it. And we're going to continue that investigation. We felt it was important though for us to be doing some, uh, some press conferences. So people understand this understood the state that we were at in the investigation. The kitchen's been closed indefinitely. The, uh, the initial daycares have been cleared for reopening and uh, 621 kids have been cleared to return. That means they've had two negative tests but we have, unfortunately, secondary infections that have occurred, you know, just playmates and uh, brothers and sisters and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, 26, pardon me, 27 secondary infections. So that resulted in a couple of partial closures of additional childcare centers. So the message that we have is if your kid's been involved in one of these facilities and have not been cleared for closure, just be careful when they're uh, about making sure that they aren't playing with other kids until they are cleared. Don't put them into another daycare causing these kind of secondary problems. We just have to make sure that we contain this. So that's where we're at right now. Yeah. You also said something about, I believe, on Alberta Chorus Radio, that uh, food handling courses might be necessary. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I have to tell you, because you know I've been in the restaurant business, and I had to have a pro-serve course. I wasn't allowed to serve a beer to anybody without having a pro-serve. Uh, it's about an eight-hour course you take online. It costs $25. And yet in the food handling, the food safe program, which we have available, uh, apparently only only one person in the kitchen, the supervisor, is required to have that. In other jurisdictions, everyone has to have the food safe training. So I, I think if we bring the price down, I, I th- and I want to talk to the restaurant business about this, but it seems very reasonable to me 
that anybody who's involved in handling food, delivering food to the public, they need to know what safe temperature is, what it has to be brought up to to, to clear and kill pathogens, what happens when food cools down, the danger zones for when it starts cooling, what you have to do when it cools and how to reheat again, how to store at low temperatures, at high temperatures. This is just very basic information you need to have if you're serving the public. And I'm of the view, having having seen this myself and um, and knowing the, the the kind of practices that are, that take place in other jurisdictions, I think that this is going to have to be a minimum requirement. What I've also heard, and I think this happens in Toronto, is that the most recent food inspection report for a kitchen has to be posted and available at the restaurant. And so I don't think that that's unreasonable either. The number of parents who told me, I mean, it's difficult to know. Where do you go online to find a particular restaurant's most recent inspection report? I don't know that that's very easy for people. We may have to make that easier too. So those are a couple of the initial things that I'm, I'm thinking we have to implement immediately, but we're still consulting to find out if there are more things that, that uh, parents would expect and the comfort for their comfort and what uh, the public would expect for their comfort as well. Okay, so as reluctant as I am to bring the minister we heard you talk about on the clip that we played at the beginning, Monsieur Guilbault, as reluctant as I am, Premier, I'm going to do it. Uh, the uh, first meeting of the Alberta-Ottawa Working Group on Emissions Reduction and Energy Development has taken place, and you uh, you tweeted on that. How do you work with Stephen Gilbo and his ministry. How do you work with them? Because, look, the parliamentary budget officer was on this program uh, about a month or two ago and talked about his report on the, uh, on the clean energy uh, initiative that Gilbo's introduced. And he pointed to the fact that this, this initiative of Mr. Gilbo is going to harm the people who can least afford to be harmed economically in Canada. And for that, he was chastised and castigated by Gilbo and Gilbo's associates. But as the PBO pointed out to us, I got all that information. He said, well, I got all the information from the ministry. I was, it took the, minute, the information they gave me and I worked on it. That we got the, the report was put together based on what we got from the ministry. How do you work with the uh, environment ministry and the minister? How do you do that? Well, Knowing how you feel about it. Let me tell you who I can work with. I've met with Jonathan Wilkinson, and he, fortunately, it's his ministry that's taking the lead on our working group. Mm-hmm. And there's some very practical people at the table. What I, what I like about Jonathan Wilkinson is he drives a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, which I think is going to be central to us building out our net zero vehicles in Alberta. So I think we have some common ground on a number of issues. And he comes from Saskatchewan, too. So I think he understands the prairies. And we've been very we've been having very constructive conversations. Um, I can work with Dominic LeBlanc as well. He's probably one of the most likable liberal ministers I've ever met. And he is also, I think, very practical. You have to remember LeBlanc comes from New Brunswick and New Mm -hmm. Brunswick is in just as much of a pickle as we are in getting to a net zero power grid. Um, Champagne as well. I can tell you, Minister Champagne is very enthusiastic about the net zero projects happening in our province and has been a funding partner on the Dow Chemical, uh, net zero petrochemical air products, hydrogen. Uh, so I, I think we can work with him. Christian Freeland, my goodness. I mean, she has done a lot of work to try to get Trans Mountain to the finish line and funding that because it keeps on having hiccups as well as having the uh, carbon capture tax credit. We've been working with her too. And even um, Prime Minister Trudeau, he and I have talked at length about small modular nuclear and how we can uh, come together on on that as well. So I wouldn't want to characterize our relationship as being uniformly negative, but I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Environment Minister Stephen Gibault is a lot of the reason why the Liberals are polling at 26% in the polls right yeah. now and losing ground all across the country, but particularly I, with young people. In my conversations when, with you in the past, I haven't heard uh, that kind of positive tone about the uh, federal Liberals individually or collectively. Uh, is the situation improving? And, and, and you're holding fast with saying, look, uh, we'll look uh, to create a carbon neutral power grid by 2050. This is all you tweeted, but remain opposed to the federal 2035 net zero power grid timeline. There you have Mr. Gilbo in play. Correct. Right? Yeah. This is why I'm very frustrated to see that we can have such a constructive relationship on so many fronts with uh, many ministers. And yet there are Allowing, as I mentioned in that clip, Stephen Gabot to be a renegade and a maverick and a hypocrite. When, you, when you've got a, a minister like him, who is a part of China's uh, committee looking at carbon reductions, and they fund 
Extinction Rebellion. I mean, those are the crazy people who glue themselves to to roads and buses. And then you also have China saying they have no intention of meeting net zero until 2060. And you have China building the equivalent of two new coal plants a week while he's grinding our gears in Alberta when we're more in sync with what the federal government wants to do. I just don't understand the dynamics there. That's why I've been very harsh saying that he causing problems. He's wrecking relationships all over this country. And he's making housing unaffordable. He's making food unaffordable. I just can't understand why his colleagues don't understand that it's his aggressiveness in pushing everything from a net zero power grid by 2035 to no more combustion engine vehicles being sold after 2035 to net zero housing by 2035, that those accelerated timeframes is what's driving up the cost of everything because it's creating investor uncertainty. And when businesses don't invest, you end up with supply shortages. When you've got supply shortages, you end up with prices going up. So I think all all roads lead to his bad policy, and I'm I'm not afraid to say it. Well, but Premier, he's either working independently as a renegade, or he has the backing of the prime minister. It's got to be one or the other, no? Correct. That's why I'm still trying to sort it out because we are. I should, and I I can help you with that. A lot of optimism that we have a good constructive plan for how we're going to be in sync on a carbon neutrality by 2050 target. Mm-hmm. But we have made it pretty clear to everybody at the table that let's let's not be rash and bring through definitive new legislation while we're going through this process. Otherwise, we'll look at that as a measure of bad faith or negotiation. We're entering this in good faith, as you can tell from mm-hmm. what I've said. Yeah. And we're hoping that the federal government pursues it with the same spirit. But I can tell you, Stephen Gibault, he's not helping. Okay. Premier, uh, you tweeted, I've just been following your tweets uh, for a little while here. I'm committed to standing alongside Alberta and ensuring the continued prosperity of our oil and natural gas sector. This involves actively pursuing strategies to reduce emissions while encouraging the world to adopt cleaner LNG energy. Makes absolute sense to me and I think to most people in this country, but uh, some of the aforementioned people, two of them anyway, Mr. Gibault and Mr. Trudeau, they can't sign on to the LNG issue. This is massively uh, painful, punitive to our national economy, to our national well-being, that they won't do that. What do you think your prospects are of creating some sort of cooperative agreement with them on that? Well, I'll find out because we have the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary over the next week. And Jonathan Wilkinson is going to be here having a minister's uh, uh, reception, uh, having people from around the world come here talking up our prospects for continuing to develop an energy source that is going to make sure that we address issues of energy security and affordability, but also get to net zero. Net zero is the theme of this conference. So I'm hoping that he can be persuaded. One of the the pieces of information we came up with when Stephen Gibo was visiting China is it would have been super nice to have him go there and say, hey, guess what? If you could replace your coal plants with clean LNG from Canada, even if we did that for just 20% of the coal plants in China, that would completely eliminate the and offset all of the emissions that we produce in Canada for the entire country. So that's why LNG export and getting credit for it is really important. If we want to reduce global emissions, there's an interim step of making sure that we're reducing the amount of coal-fired electricity. And then in on top of that, doing what we're doing in Alberta, which is developing carbon capture technology so we can capture its source and either sequester it or turn it into useful products. We're at the infancy of that technology, but we're already well ahead in Alberta. We've already s- stored uh, millions of tons of CO2 underground safely. And then the development of a, a hydrogen economy, which I'm very keen about. I got a chance to drive a, a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle over the summer. And there's a a consortium of businesses in Alberta that have started a 5,000 vehicle challenge. We want to get to 5,000 net zero hydrogen vehicles in uh, in as quickly as we possibly can to start building out that that infrastructure. That, I think, is another important way that we can find some common cause. And then the small modular nuclear. I know that um, uh, Blaine Higgs... New Brunswick Premier sending out his energy minister to Alberta next week. We've also had energy ministers get together and talk with Ontario about how we might be able to leverage their rollout of small modular nuclear at the Darlington plant in in Ontario, as well as at the site in New Brunswick, so that we can develop similar protocols in Alberta so that we can get those rolled out as well. So those are the things that I think are going to help decarbonize in a very significant way and still allow us to use all the benefit that we get from oil and natural gas. I think people forget that there's other uses to oil and natural gas besides combustion. 
You can also use it for petrochemicals. You can use it for um, lubricants. You can use it for building materials. There's actually 6,000 different products. Well, we can't do without oil. it. We can't do without it now. The world cannot. The, there's a, you know, the, the definition of the word transition is fairly clear. It's not instant. It takes time. And it's called a transition for that reason. Premier, what about the... Uh, you tweeted this, just when we've all had enough of the carbon tax. <laughs> Ottawa has decided to introduce a new tax on homes. New homes uh, bill, new home builds would cost at least $35,000 more for families in Alberta, 71000 in Ontario, due to the new green requirements. What are you going to do? Well, I spoke with Build Alberta. That's our industry association on Saturday. And I said, let's develop a new pathway for how we get to net zero. There's a community in Alberta that is looking at how they can use hydrogen in as a, a fuel source so that rather so that you can still have gas-fired appliances and gas-fired uh, um, home heating and gas-fired furnaces. And I'm really excited about that potential because if you can use hydrogen, sequester the CO2 and be at zero emissions that way, why wouldn't we pursue that? So I think that the problem is the federal government has got themselves locked in to a particular paradigm that's simply not going to work. Their, their paradigm is everything should be wind and solar and battery power or hydroelectric for those places that have it. And everything should be on the power grid, not just your electricity, but all industrial mm -hmm. products, all your transportation, all of your home heating. And I think we're just seeing what, with the tragedy that's happening in Nova Scotia about why we need to have redundant systems. I'm, I'm reading that there's tens of thousands of people without electricity. Yeah. You need to be able to rebuild when things go wrong. And there's lots of catastrophes that happen. We've had fires, we've had floods, we've had we've had tornadoes, we've had ice storms. And so I'm just not prepared to accept the, the federal paradigm. I, I think that we've got to develop multiple different sources. And Homes is a prime example. They, okay. If we pursued their model of net zero, Build says that it would actually, in our province, cost seventy to eighty thousand dollars per home. I got to stop you. Home. I have to stop you. I've I've never heard you this calm about Ottawa before. This is a new Premier Daniel Smith. So uh, the E. coli story is uh, is really one that has caught the attention of everybody in this country, and particularly parents now, because we have the three hundred and forty-two kids in Alberta as of yesterday who tested positive for. Uh, for E. coli. 13 remain hospitalized from what we understand. And it's a very serious issue. But what is E. coli? Which E. coli bacteria attacks the body? And uh, we, we all have E. coli in our systems, and most of it isn't of any concern. However, the E. coli, which infected over 300 kids at Calgary Daycares, uh, that one's known as, as I understand, as sugar toxin producing E. coli. And it can be deadly as well. Let's talk to somebody who knows a great deal about this, and he's always very good to us with his time. Dr. Joseph Blondo, clinical microbiologist, head of clinical microbiology at Saskatoon's Royal University and Hospital and at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Blondo, thank you very much for coming on the program. I always like to ask doctors this question. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, thank you, and thanks for asking me to come back on. Yeah, it's good to have you with us. Because I don't think anybody asked, ever asked doctors, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Okay, good. What is the function of E. coli bacteria in our bodies? Well, E. coli is a normal organism found in the intestines of not only humans, but a number of different animals. Um, it's one of the coliform bacteria, of which there are many different um, um, genus uh, within sort of a large group of organisms um, that comprise this gram-negative family. And um, under normal circumstances, the bacteria that inhabit our gastrointestinal tract, for all intents and purposes, serve to protect us from other types of organisms that may cause disease. But in some patients, uh, E. coli in particular can, in fact, uh, cause disease. So a typical example would be a female patient with a urinary tract infection. The number one cause of uh, urinary tract infections in females is E. coli. And depending on which studies you read, they account for anywhere from 60 to 80% of all community-acquired urinary tract infections and up to about 50% of hospital-acquired urinary tract infections. As well, the E. coli that inhabits our body uh, may also move into our bloodstream on occasion uh, and cause bacteremia or sepsis. Uh, but, but under normal circumstances, most of us are healthy and live quite fine with these organisms in our intestine. Dr. Blondo, what are the conditions which need to exist to turn E. coli dangerous? Well, I mean, in, in regards to what's happening, unfortunately, in Alberta, 
this is a particular strain of uh, E. coli that you alluded to, this shigatoxin-producing strain. And this is an organism that has picked up the genetic material that allows it to produce this toxin. And this toxin is released from the bacteria as the bacteria multiplies and divides. And uh, a part of the pathogenesis of causing disease is related to the presence of this toxin, which can disseminate throughout the body. Um, is there a way to preclude this? Or I mean, we're, now they're looking at the potential because one kitchen serviced all of these daycares. Where does yeah. food handling and food safety come into play as far as E. coli, the dangerous version of E. coli is concerned? Well, I think we first of all, we have to acknowledge that, that we're fortunate in this country that we have good food security and we have, um, you know, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and we have other uh, entities which actually try and guarantee that the food that we come into contact with is safe. But uh, you are correct. Uh, under uh, circumstances where, you know, contaminated food or, or liquid products, water, um, unpasteurized milk, for example, uh, if they happen to make their way into the system, uh, then either uh, consuming this contaminated food, and, and certainly that occurs if you're eating um, undercooked uh, products like, say, ground beef that's undercooked, um, can facilitate the spread of this particular organism. And so you can imagine a scenario if you had a food handler, and if, if that turns out to be the source of, of, of how this spread uh, within the Alberta outbreak, um, one could imagine, say, a, a food handler perhaps had uh, symptoms of diarrhea, perhaps are not very good at washing their hands or hand washing is not part of their normal routine, uh, those hands uh, become contaminated during this process of trying to clean themselves after they've had a diarrheal episode, um, then that organism can be spread from the hands onto food and food products or onto surfaces that come in contact with food. And uh, once the food becomes contaminated, uh, if it's not uh, thoroughly cooked, uh, then there's a potential for transmission. So if uh, if this situation, and we pray that it doesn't, but if this situation were to happen in Saskatchewan and you were called in to, uh, to uh, address it, what would you do? Well, I, I think the first thing is, is we need to prove that, in fact, this is the organism that's uh, causing this problem. And that's relatively straightforward in a modern and well-equipped laboratory these days. It's a fairly easy organism to isolate and identify with the technologies that we have. Um, and then, you know, you start to uh, work backwards to try and figure out um, um, where the potential contamination may have come. So, um, you know, there have been uh, outbreaks of, of food poisoning in the past uh, that have been linked to either a certain event and sometimes to a certain food. And, um, and so you can work backwards to actually try and, and figure this out. And then as part of working backwards, you try and uh, determine uh, whether or not uh, it was an individual or a food source or a combination of an individual and a food source that may have been responsible for um, uh, this organism now being, uh, you know, uh, transmitted to other individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you have to move fairly quickly on this uh, because, you know, sometimes things get thrown away. And if, if you think it was a food-related uh, event, uh, if that food is not available in order to test, uh, then the opportunity may be lost to prove uh, where it actually came from. Uh, but So the lab needs to quickly identify these reports in the public health, and then public health needs to start the process of working backwards very quickly. Okay. Actually, one of the questions I had for you was, are there early indicators, and do they give sufficient time to respond? Well, you know, if a, if a patient showed up uh, to the hospital and they had the symptoms, so let's just say they had severe abdominal cramps, and uh, if they had blood in their stool um, as a result of diarrhea, perhaps if they were vomiting, they may or may not have a fever, uh, then, you know, a specimen is taken and sent to the laboratory. And with today's technology, we could actually, if we had a specimen this morning, uh, we could have an answer by this afternoon as to whether or not this is likely to be a, a shigatoxin producing E. coli. Um, that would be enough for us to then to alert public health um, as we go through our confirmation process. Um, so in, 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 you know, 10, 20 years ago, when the technology that we have today didn't exist, it could have taken days in order to determine uh, whether or not you had one of these organisms. But with today's technology, we can actually do it fairly quickly. Okay. What, uh, do you have concerns, particular concerns? I don't want to scare anybody, but do you have any particular concerns about the kids who are still in the hospital? Oh, I, you know, I mean, uh, these kids uh, that are in the hospital, if they have this uh, 
unfortunate condition called hemoglobinuremic syndrome, um, you know, some of those children are on dialysis. Now, with appropriate therapy, um, the chances of a, of a recovery is very good. Um, but is it possible that some of these children could go on and continue to clinically deteriorate? Uh, yes, that is a recognized phenomenon with this uh, particular uh, disease. So I think we always need to be concerned whenever we see this type of illness uh, as associated with an outbreak that's leading to hospitalization in some of these patients on dialysis. It's very scary, very frightening. Yeah, it is scary. Absolutely. So we've talked about E. coli, which is the big story out of Alberta that is everybody in this country paying very close attention. But let's talk about uh, COVID and let's talk about the flu and shots and masks because it's all in the news and everybody has, seems to have strong opinions, go on social media, and it doesn't take you very long to find folks who have very, 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 very strong opinions on all three. Dr. Blondo, first of all, let's start with the uh, with the annual flu. Do we know what the strain is at this point? What does the flu shot actually do for us, and who should be taking it? So the uh, influenza vaccine is, is a seasonal vaccine that actually has a number of different uh, um, strains of influenza covered. Usually it's a couple of type A's and a, and a type B. And what that does is, uh, so, so for, for all the listeners, uh, there are sentinel programs set up around the world uh, to monitor the emergence of new influenza strains. That information is, is taken by the drug manufacturing companies that, that produce uh, uh, vaccines, and they uh, take that information as part of their design and construction of, of the new vaccine that will come out for, for this year. And so when you get uh, immunized with the influenza vaccine, it's uh, to pr- provide you with protected antibody against the strains of influenza, or at least the antigens from the strains of in- influenza that have been put into that particular vaccine. And most years, uh, it's usually a, a good match. Uh, there's the odd time when, when perhaps the match is not perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, before the COVID pandemic, uh, we always used to talk about influenza every season because influenza is a killer as well. And, and once again, it, it tends to, you know, uh, have uh, some of its more severe consequences, you know, in the very young and the very old and people with underlying medical conditions. But it is a virus that actually can cause uh, death in people of any age and, and, and really of any health status. Uh, so in my opinion, it's it's never a virus that we should just ignore. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think most of us have just generally assumed, well, the flu, the flu comes every year and you, you deal with it and you get better. But you're right. I mean, there are hundreds of people who die. Obviously, you're right. You're the microbiologist. But the, hundreds of people die every year in this country from the flu. I would say thousands. Thousands, not okay. Hundreds. Wow. Uh, so it's... it's um, much higher. We we get good statistics out of the United States, um, um, and um, Canada is about a tenth of what the data is from the United States. So, you know, in a, in a particularly bad flu season, we may see two to three thousand deaths, and the United States may see twenty to thirty or higher, a thousand. Mm. Um, so once again, you know, it, it's a virus which um, vaccination can prevent uh, you from getting a more severe form of disease, and for that reason, it makes vaccine a reasonable. Uh, decision. So, as I mentioned, if you go on social media, you'll very quickly find people reacting negatively to the idea of any more COVID boosters and reacting negatively to the idea of wearing masks. You see the, oh, I won't do it. Hell no, not me. I'm not getting involved again. That's it. I'm done. Would you please, Dr. Blondo, speak to the people who feel that way about the COVID vaccine and the booster shots and about, about wearing a mask? What do you say to the people who are telling me and telling, would tell you as well, not me, I'm not doing it again, I don't need it, it doesn't work? Well, they, they do tell me. Um, I do get emails. I, I get messages left uh, at my voicemail at the hospital, and um, there's a wide range of opinions. Um Everybody has COVID fatigue. Uh, th- that's an absolute given. Um, I don't think any, anybody, including myself, want to go back to the types of restrictions that we had in the past, uh, particularly we're in the height of the pandemic. But, but the reality is, is the virus is still out there. And we have a well-proven intervention in terms of vaccination, plus a couple of antiviral drugs, uh, that we can use to reduce the likelihood that we would uh, be the victim of a severe infection. And, you know, those infections are still inc- still occurring. Uh, we still see patients that are being hospitalized um, 
uh, with COVID. I mean, if you care to go to the Government of Canada website and look at the statistics that are posted every week uh, from the Government of Canada, you can look at how many uh, how many uh, positive um, um, people in Canada were diagnosed in the past week or two. And it's not a couple, it's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. And, um, and we do know that we don't like masks, but we also know after two years of experience with them that they work. And, you know, if you have a vulnerable uh, member of your family uh, where you yourself may not be concerned about you yourself because, I, you know, I don't care, you know, it's possible that, that you could be the vector that could bring COVID home to a vulnerable individual and that vulnerable individual could end up with a severe infection requiring hospitalization and heaven forbid, uh, go on to die from this uh, disease. There are still lots of people in this country who are not vaccinated. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of people who did not follow up with booster shots when they were made available. So that brings us to the current vaccine. So some of the terminology, Roy, is changing. Um, booster shots may not be the preferred terminology anymore because booster implies that you're being uh, immunized against something that you previously had immunization for. And in fact, this vaccine is a new vaccine in terms of specifically targeting the Omicron variants and subvariants. And as such, it's slightly different from the previous uh, or the original uh, COVID vaccines, first the monovalent and then the bivalent. And, and so it seems to suggest that we might be moving to this as more of a seasonal thing like influenza in, in terms of getting a, maybe a seasonal uh, uh, immunization or maybe uh, twice a year. I don't know the answer to that question at this point in time. Um, but as the number of cases continues to climb, and they are doing so uh, in the United States where the data has been quite convincing, and I believe they're actually starting to climb here as well, um, everybody has to make a decision what's right for them and their families. And as much as we hate masks, they are a proven technology to reduce the likelihood that you become infected or infect somebody else. The individual economy of Canadians is not good. 50, again, more than half of us are within $200 of not being able to come up with 200 bucks to pay our bills at the end of the month. 24% of us would have to sell something, borrow some money in order to generate $500 in a 24-hour period. We've talked about this issue. We've talked to MNP and we've talked to the Char Chartered Professional Accountants who, uh, who did the, uh, the uh, $500 survey. Daryl Bricker's company, Ipsos Public Affairs, did the polling on these particular questions, and Mr. Bricker joins us on The Roy Green Show. Daryl, thank you for the time. These are very concerning uh, realities that Canadians are facing. I want to ask you, who are the Canadians who are facing this? Well, it sounds like all Canadians. When you take a look at the at the the, uh, the surveys, um, it's uh, it's not just uh, you know normally you'd say low income Canadians. I mean, you, your caller was perfect just before this conversation. This is a middle class guy, two working parents, raising three kids. The last one, you know, soon to be empty nesters. The last one's in university, and these guys are struggling. That that never used to be the case. No, it didn't. And these are people who are also probably trying to prepare for retirement. Yeah. This just shows you how deep this cuts. And, you know, the, the conversation about, you know, debt and uh, particularly related to housing used to be very much, uh, you know, a conversation about uh, uh, lower income people not being able to find uh, affordable houses. Now it's people like the, the individual who was just on, on, on your show. And this is why you're seeing inflation at the top of the list whenever we go out and we do surveys about what the issues are that concern you the most. And, and inflation is just the way that real people talk about what real people call the cost of living, you know, how hard it is to get by. And, and Canadians are telling us over and over in these surveys that they are finding it harder every day. And this is why you're seeing, for example, the Prime Minister and, uh, and the Liberal Party after, their, um, after their, uh, uh, their caucus retreat coming out and announcing a whole bunch of things. It's why we've seen Pierre Polyev, the national leader of the, of the Conservative Party, banging on about this. But you're also hearing it from the municipalities in the provinces. It is getting tough out there, and people are not happy. No, and you know, it was a silly line that I came up with over a year ago. What's uh, the inflation rate all about? Well, it's about people who are trying to fill up their car and go to the grocery store, or go, you know, they're going to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning, and they can't afford to fill up it either. 
So that was just a, it wasn't a throwaway line, but it's, it was a line that I came up with, but it's, it's true. And it's, it's becoming more and more fact, isn't it? That's, that's the reality people are, are living with. Well, enough so that, you know, the, uh, the, the federal government has decided to call in all the, uh, the heads of the major grocery yeah. companies to explain themselves. Yeah. So, you know, we're, it, it, it's moving beyond just being like uh, uh, something that people, you know, talk about as a curiosity. It's, it's, it's becoming something that's fundamental to people's lives. And, you know, we're now looking back to times like 2019 as the good old days. It's interesting, right? isn't it? Yeah, compared to how, yeah. how things are going right now. Yeah. How true is that? Uh, Hail Mary Pass from the Liberals, though, isn't it, to call in the uh, the grocery store? Yeah, CEOs. it really, uh, the, the, the issue that they're dealing with is when you look at the economy and you look at their level of credibility on the economy, it's so low that um, everything that they're doing now just kind of looks a little bit uh, desperate. You know, maybe three years ago or two years ago or some other time, it might have been something that would have appealed to the public, but the public's kind of moved past them now in terms of the credibility in the, uh, on the economy. And the conservatives are way, way ahead on this. And if the election is about the, the next election is about the economy, the liberals will be in a lot of trouble. How much trouble are they in now? Well, they're they're in uh, as desperate a time as they have been since ever since the SNC Lavalin scandal. And the difference then was that people were um, disappointed in the prime minister. They weren't angry with him. They're now angry. Mm -hmm. You know, Daryl, I've said this before. When I go for my bike rides in my neighborhood, I see the surrender signs increasingly. And that's the for sale signs on the front lawn of homes. And I, I know that a percentage of the people who are putting those for sale signs up just can't afford it anymore. They didn't really want to move, but they have to because they don't have the money to keep on with the house, with the mortgage payments, with all of the other expenses they have. And, and you've just said that when we're talking about 52% of Canadians being within $200 of not being able to meet their monthly financial obligations, and one out of four not being able to raise $500 to pay bills in a 24-hour period without selling something or borrowing money, you're saying that's right across the spectrum. That's everybody in Canada, right? Well, you know, seniors on fixed incomes. Yeah. Um, you're dealing with younger people who are, you know, paying for uh, probably student debt and, and also exorbitant levels of, uh, of rental uh, uh, income um, that, that that they have to pay, and then you're dealing with people just like the individual who was on the call, Anthony in Mississauga, yeah, yeah, who is like the middle class and those who want to join us, right? And yeah. that, that that's what the liberal government promised when they were elected in 2015. We're going to help out the people who are the middle class and those who want to. Well, we had a middle class minister. We had a minister for the middle class. Yeah, and uh, it's what has uh, happened to that minister. Well, we don't really hear that much about it anymore, but um, the, the effect of that is what you're seeing now, which is the, the liberals in the, in, you know, in the mid-20s right. in the polling, and you, you're just not going to win from there. And then the, one, the one point that people aren't making about this is that it's, it's, it's not just the liberals that the public is angry with, it's the coalition. So you're seeing both the liberals and the NDP decline. Yeah. And between the two of them now, if the seat models are accurate, they don't have enough uh, between the two of them to form a government if we held an election. Tomorrow. So Mr. Polyev would be forming a majority government. Well, he, even if he has a minority situation, he might have to either get the NDP or the Bloc Québécois to cooperate with him. But then again, the Liberals would probably have to get the Bloc Québécois to cooperate with them as well. Yeah. Boy, uh, it's, it's a, it's a topsy-turvy world and uh, there are lots of blips on the radar screen. Not, I well, say more than blips. There's a lot yeah, to be well, concerned no, about. This is, this is as dire a situation as I've seen for the federal liberals yeah. uh, since, uh, as I said, since uh, SNC-Lavalin. And uh, the, the way to get out of it is not obvious. They're going to have to, they're probably sitting back thinking, well, maybe there's a possibility that the conservatives are, are going to make mistakes. But people are so disappointed and angry with the current situation, and they need to have somebody to blame. And right or wrong, it's, it's, it's Mr. Trudeau and, and the Liberal Party. I don't know quite how to start this. I could start it with a spectacular sentence, but I'm not going to. I'm going to just work it up a little bit. Criminal courts. Courts generally in the province of Ontario and likely beyond are in disarray. 
today, right now, at this moment, because of staffing issues and health concerns with, within the courtrooms. So why is that a story, Roy? Why does that matter, Roy? Well, it matters because cases are not being heard as they're scheduled. And it matters because hundreds of criminal cases, and maybe more, maybe thousands, may be thrown out because of not meeting the required timelines from charges being laid to a trial concluded per the Supreme Court Jordan decision of 2016. So let's go a little more spectacular for a moment here. Might an accused, charged killer walk free? Yep. Not the first time this has been an issue. In 2017, that's not so long ago, folks. Let's see, let's do the finger count. Six years ago, a report by the Senate Standing Committee on Legal and Constitutional Affairs revealed tens of thousands of criminal cases may have to be thrown out for the same reason, because they did not meet the Supreme Court's Jordan decision of a year earlier. This is where I reach to my very good friend of more than 30 years, anything and everything I know about the Canadian justice system, I've learned from him. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Officer of the Canadian Police Association, Vice Chair of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, and Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal and Ontario Public Safety Ministries. So, Scott, in language we can understand, which you're really good at, not getting us caught up in legalese, what is the story here? Well, the first thing is that um, I agree. You and I have been talking about uh, these, shall we say, justice system performance issues for decades, and they're... They ebb and flow, and the latest reporting is showing that in Ontario specifically, there is just an an absolute chaos, is the word that one reporter used. And there are many, many systemic reasons, and look, it is complicated, but um, for, for me, the original... Uh, sort of piece of hypocrisy, glaring hypocrisy, was the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in the uh, Jordan case, as you mentioned, in 2016. Um, because, you know, think about it, folks. You always hear the Supreme Court saying, oh, Parliament, you know, you can't do this. You're interfering with judicial discretion. And so, you know, that's unconstitutional. Discretion isn't the cornerstone of uh, our system. And then they turn around and arbitrarily set specific presumptive timelines for cases to be processed. Like, you know, as I say, the word that just strikes me about that is uh, hypocritical. And, but that is the reality of today's world is that we're in a system where people, you know, have to, uh, prosecutors, uh, judges, theoretically are attempting to make sure that they meet those timelines because in our criminal justice system, which is an adversarial system, right, there are two sides. The And, and you know, this is our system, so it's, it's not something to be uh, uh, downplayed, but the uh, responsibility of defense counsel is to help their clients avoid criminal responsibility for their actions. Yeah, so, so delaying so, it is one of the best ways they can do it. Yeah, so Scott, when people say, well, that, that, that could never happen, they wouldn't be setting people free who are charged Just, with murder or sexual assault. Yes, they have. After the Jordan decision and before the Senate committee hearing or report came out, you should know this, ladies and gentlemen, that there were... More in, in addition to, there were more than 200 criminal cases in Canada, including those being processed against people in, accused of murder, charged with murder, charged with sexual assault, charged with being drug dealers, charged with uh, crimes against children. They were walked because... The decision was made, well, you didn't get this case done in the appropriate period of time, so we're setting this individual free. Bye-bye, charged with murder. Bye-bye, charged with sexual assault. Bye-bye, charged with drug trafficking. Off you go, and we apologize for not appropriately and quickly enough uh, dealing with your case. It happened again and again and again and again. And uh, just two, two 
quick points about that is that, um, you know, there is in the Jordan decision, it's not an absolute uh, uh, timeline. The courts do have discretion if there are exceptional circumstances. Um, and so, you know, that's something to take into account. But um, one of the things that struck me there was an earlier ruling called Stinchcomb uh, relatively shortly after the charter was passed in, I think, 1983, that said that the Crown had a constitutional obligation to make disclosure to the accused or their lawyer about what the case was against them. Now, I happened to work in an office with that had a really brilliant guy as the chief Crown prosecutor, and he had put that is a policy into place that we were supposed to do this. But as we said after the uh, that case came out, uh, most defense counsel were asking for disclosure in the hope that they wouldn't get it. So they could then claim that there was a charter breach. And our system has become so process-focused, okay? And over the years, and the Senate report that you've referred to is a really good description of these kinds of different issues. In my experience, I think we've lost some of the cornerstone principles, which is the, the public officials, police officers, Crown prosecutors, uh, judges held discretion, and it was it was not a one-size-fits-all system. You took a look at you know the uh, unique circumstances of the case, but it, it used to be that process was supposed to serve purpose, mm-hmm. and now it's the other way around. By the and, way, I should let people know that the unreasonable delay period is if uh, you don't conclude a case. If it's uh, 18, I think it's 18 months in provincial 18 court. 18 months for right. summary conviction offense and 30 months for uh, an indictable offense, yes. Okay, so so you you're charged with murder, so you're, you're charged with murder issues. and you're walked, you're sent home. Yeah, and there are so many systemic issues because, you know, in our Constitution, the uh, jurisdiction for making the criminal law resides with the federal government, yeah. 127 yeah. of the Act, but the responsibility for the administration of justice resides with the province. Okay, so let's bring this back to its genesis, shall we, for this time in 2023. This is happening because they don't have enough staff. Yeah, I saw that in the uh, in one of the articles. This is that, happening because they don't have enough people working in their courtrooms. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> that is to me. That's not mind boggling. That's mind numbing. Well, I'd like to. I hope that um, you know, in, in our current environment, especially with all the provinces coming together about this, uh, you know, need for quote bail reform, which is much bigger than just bail reform. I hope that this will also lead to those kinds of systemic analysis of the situations about if there is a staff shortage, why? Exactly. Are people, uh, you know, deployed efficiently? Maybe what we should do is transfer money, because guess what? The longer a case goes on, and by the way, folks, that yelling you may be hearing right now, this is from the defense lawyers out there who are screaming at what I'm saying, but um, the longer the case goes on, the more the lawyer gets paid. So there's obviously an interest in that. And one of the recommendations I made years ago was let's take the money that is a part of legal aid that is where we pay lawyers, private lawyers to handle the cases and put it into full-time legal aid public defenders because I think we get better efficiency in the system. Right, Scott. Uh, There's a lot of things that need to be done here, but this reporting, and and by the way, I keep in touch with my friends in Alberta. Uh, You were quite correct that this is not unique to Ontario. Different provinces may have different problems, but I think uh, this reality points out the need to have that kind of systemic analysis and to actually make the changes that will help to improve okay. because it the justice system does, is not the private preserve of judges and criminals and their lawyers. It's a public system and it belongs to the public. So we need to take it back. So, by the way, the, the Supreme, Court, Supreme Court decision was five to four. So there were four Supreme Court justices in 2016 who disagreed, but they got overruled five to four. Now, so we're talking about what's going on in the justice system of this country. We could have, again, hundreds maybe thousands of charged people charged with violent crime, including murder, sexual assault, being walked, because their cases are not 
handled this quickly enough, according to the Supreme Court decision of 2016, the Jordan case. Then there's the issue of NCR, not criminally responsible. NCR has been a national headlines creating reality for some time. Once again is in British Columbia with Premier David Eby saying he's white hot angry over the release of an NCR psychiatric patient, Blair Evan Donnelly, who stabbed his teenage daughter to death, I think in 2006 and last weekend, also stabbed three people at the Light Up Chinatown Festival in Vancouver. Making news as well this week, Matthew DeGroote of Calgary, who stabbed five university students to death at a Calgary house party in 2014. DeGroote was found to be NCR two years later because of an undiagnosed schizophrenia and was sent to the Alberta Hospital in Edmonton, where he is still receiving ongoing psychiatric treatment. Last year, the Alberta Review Board assessed DeGroote as a continuing significant threat to the public, not entitled to an absolute discharge. Now, Mr. DeGroote is appealing to the very aforementioned Supreme Court of Canada, in order to gain a conditional discharge with additional freedoms, not criminally responsible. NCR, Scott, what do you say? Well, back in my day as a prosecutor, we used to refer to it as insanity. Um, and I had a couple of cases where I got uh, some introduction uh, where people were applying for a court ruling that said that they were insane and thus not uh, liable to criminal conviction. Um, I didn't lose any, uh, and but I did a lot of research actually into it, and I remember in particular this one horrific case of this woman who uh, was babysitting all of her neighbors' uh, kids and everything else. Everybody went bowling, and she got angry, and this little uh, child. Uh, people, was, people need to think about whether they want to hear it, right? Pardon me. People need to think about whether they want to hear what you're going to say. Well. She, let's just say she did absolutely brutal things to kill this kid and then tried to claim that she was insane. And so I did some research into it, and I found out that the what the process was, and that's very, very important in what's going on in B.C. right now. Um, and the, uh, the there was uh, – it has to be uh, – based on a recognized uh, mental disorder. And it was in a, the, uh, the, the profession, the psychiatric profession has what was known as the DSR, the Diagnostic and Statistical Research. Uh, and it was a publication, and it was the third volume by now. It was in the mid-'80s when I did that case, so by now they're probably up to the third, 300th volume. Uh, but they actually came up with this, recommendation, or the the report had this, uh, and by the way, the, the DSR, as it was known, I like to call it the BSR, um, but it was that uh, there was a uh, psychiatric disorder called isolated explosive disorder, or intermittent explosive disorder. Mm-hmm. And I remember in cross-examination, I said, you know, wouldn't like most people call that losing your temper? Scott, we'll have to pick this up again another day. The bottom line, let me just finish. The bottom line of this is that what the Premier is proposing is an excellent idea because it's an independent review of the process. Okay. Roy, I went through the criminal code and pulled out all the sections. It is there. They should be looking at as well. Let's talk about it next weekend, okay? The rules were followed. Got to go, buddy. Got to go. It's called a hard out. We'll talk about it next weekend on the World Trade Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.